0: Hi friends, this is professional big mountain skier, Lindsay Dyer, and this is my new podcast showing up. It's a conversation athlete to athlete, looking at the secret lives of action sports athletes and leaders in the outdoor space. Essentially, if you've ever wondered what it's like to make a career out of the outdoors, this is the podcast for you of course you'll hear from skiers and snowboarders mountaineers to paddleboarders but you'll also hear from politicians fighting to protect our public lands and change makers bringing the outdoors to more diverse populations you'll even hear from some of my native american friends who see the outdoors not as only a place to recreate but as a family member you'll hear stories like how a cheerleader from minnesota ended up high up at ESPN and a main commentator at the Olympics to stories like how a bartender from the East Coast went from a nobody to creating Deadliest Catch and then way high up at National Geographic. My intention with showing up is to share the stories of those unicorns who are truly living to their highest potential so that we can all benefit and maybe show up for some impossible dream in the outdoors that you had. I hope you like the show, because this one's for you. Today's podcast is with one of my absolute heroes and ridiculously big deal, Sally Jewell, only the former US Secretary of the Interior to the Obama administration. Yeah, it was my second interview. of course, I didn't tell her that. But she took the interview and put me at ease almost instantly and she'll do the same for you her stories are incredible her anecdotes have something for everyone to learn she's incredibly entertaining and inspiring and if you listen to no other of my podcasts listen to this one because this woman is the epitome of what an empowered woman mom business professional and steward and voice of 20 percent of all our U.S. land. Beyond the inspirational story of how she came to be, Sally will lay out for all of us what's really going on with our public lands and what the current administration can and can't do. You'll wanna to listen to this one all the way through and then make sure to give us a rating on iTunes as well as your comments, enjoy. Okay, we're going. Okay. Sally Jewell sat down with me, thank you. I'm so honored for your time. Thank you so much for making time. It's a uh, pleasure. You were, I was, I've been so nervous about this. And the moment you walked on stage yesterday, you have such an air about, that is I think divine feminine. And I don't mean to get all woo woo on you, but this mixture of power as well as as softness that I think we all could learn from. And were you just born with that? (laughs) (laughs) Did you learn that? Uh,
1: well, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at my own journey. I was a tomboy. That's probably not surprising. Mm-hmm. A lot of my childhood friends were boys. Uh, and when I did outdoor activities, a lot of times I'd be on the boys' side, you know, in like pine cone fights or whatever <laughs> else. Um, and I'd say in, in some ways embracing my femininity was almost more difficult. I wanted to be a boy when I was little. And, you know, as I went through puberty and into middle school, then I I think my femininity began to come out. And I think as a 61-year-old woman now, who was pre-Title IX when I was in school, if I wanted to play basketball, you were not allowed to shoot overhand. You had to shoot from between your knees. You had, can you imagine like how accurate your shot's going to be if you huck a basketball from between your knees to try and make it in the basket? Why? because girls were not strong enough to shoot overhanded. That was the conventional wisdom. And so it was a half court. You weren't allowed to touch each other. Even a brush or a touch of the hand was a foul. Wow. And you had to shoot from between your knees. I graduated from high school in 1973. That's so not that long li- ago, it's really. not that long ago. You know, it's, it's really crazy. So what kind of signals did that send to me? So I did not do sports in high school, at least to any significant degree. I, I tried tennis, but that really wasn't my sport but there was a climbing club and I was a, a child who was encouraged by my parents to play in the outdoors. I used to tromp through the hobo jungle, which was, you know, just a, a wild area not and far from my Washington, house. that's Washington, right? Uh, yes. I lived south of Seattle in a suburb called Renton, mm-hmm. which was kind of a blue collar Boeing town. Mm-hmm. My father's a doctor. He worked at Renton Hospital, later Valley General, and, and, and later he moved on to different places. But uh, we used to you know, my school pals my or friends from the neighborhood and I used to tromp through the hobo jungle, which literally there were lots of homeless encampments. And it's like, wow, you know, this fire is going, but there's nobody here. I, you know, as a six- and seven-year-old child, and you walk on through, and, you know, it was like actually the homeless people there were part of the community. You'd see them in the local convenience store, and, you know, I never felt threatened. But that was my world, and it was that nature, you know, close to the outdoors. And my parents uh, nourished a love of the outdoors. I started skiing when I was nine. And- Where? Uh, Snoqualmie Pass. Nice. You know, that lovely place where That's you a stood at in the rain and, you know, wrung out your boots at the end of the day. I started with leather boots, leather gloves, um, cable bindings. Tubco bindings were the first step-ins that I had. My father, working as a doctor, saw a lot of ER cases of uh, skiing injuries, and uh, that's why he got us these r- release bindings. Anyway, you can you had to have plates on the bottom of your boots. But
0: and did he teach you, or did both of no, them? Teach no, no. I was
1: the first to ski in my family. I'm an immigrant from England. We moved uh, to the United States in 1959 when I was three years old. My dad, uh, as he worked in the hospital as a fellow at the University of Washington, said to the other doctors, "Well, what do people do here?" and uh, you know, He was told that, well, they hike and they camp, and you buy your gear from this little store, which is in the second floor above the Green Apple Pie Market in downtown Seattle called REI. So my dad joined, member number 17,249, <laughs> in 1959. And so it's actually... We grew up doing things in the outdoors, but my parents had not done that. They did it as a learned behavior because that's what people did in these public lands that were so accessible to my home. Playing in the backyard around my house got me interested in the outdoors. And then my parents would support our attendance at camps and not organize summer camps. I went on camps where we actually camped, and we were out with a graduate student who would teach us, like, meteorology and plant biology and how to identify trees and animals in the outdoors how to identify clouds and I'll tell you that just sparked a love of the outdoors two weeks camping with kids nine ten eleven years old
0: I read that you were nine right I I was nine and actually
1: I was climbing a tree on that first trip on one of these two-week trips white by the White River kind of on the doorstep to Mount Rainier um, and I fell out of the tree and I had a nearly compound fracture of my left arm my left wrist so I ended up in the Enum Claw Hospital, <laughs> which was pretty rudimentary in those days. They actually laid a cheesecloth with ether on it to knock me out. Wow. It was very scary. But because my father was a doctor and the and the medical practice at that time was if that doctors didn't charge each other for services. So my parents had medical insurance and I had a fifty dollar check that came to me to pay my doctor, so I went to pay my doctor and he said, No, no, you know, professional courtesy, you keep the money. So I took that check (laughs) for 50 bucks, and I went to my parents, and I said, I want to learn to ski. And so that $50 was enough to help buy me some equipment in that first year, and they sent me to the Fiorini Ski School, which was uh, one of our local sporting goods shops. So I was the first in the family to ski. And And what inspired that? I I don't quite remember, except that it looked exciting, and I liked you know, the outdoors. And I probably looked at people like Lindsay Dyer back in those days, you know, Wide World of Sports on ABC was what everybody watched on Saturday afternoons. And so you saw a lot of the Olympic sports that we don't see so much now with too much television and not enough focus on individual things and so many channels to choose from. But then there was like just the networks and you had your little rabbit ears. And the one thing everybody watched was Wild World of Sports, Hmm. you know, the thrill of victory and the Agony of Defeat, and they always show a skier crashing, which uh, you're familiar <laughs> with. So that's probably what inspired me. Interesting. But I started to ski, and, and then when I got into high school, I talked about Title IX and you know, not having access to a lot of the sports. And so I went into individual sports, and I joined the climbing club. And so I first attempted Mount Rainier when I was 15. And we got turned back in a whiteout at the Ingram Flats, came down by compass long before GPSs had been invented. I learned a lot from that trip. But my first successful summit was the following summer. And it was led by a guy named Tom, who was 18. And he was in search and rescue, just graduated from high school. And there wasn't, Tom was the oldest in our trip. And I was the youngest at 16. So everybody's between 16 and 18. There were nine of us and we all summited Mount Rainier. Wow. I mean, so, you know, it was a, it was a different time, but it was a, a time when I think perhaps because there weren't a lot of organized sports available to girls, many of us did do individual sports. And for me, it was just the gift of that plus a connection to nature that it really gave me a lifelong love of nature that I think is there in all children. Do you feel like some of those summits helped you in any other ways outside of the mountain? A thousand other ways, you know, self-sufficiency, confidence, uh, humility, Mountains are capricious places. Mm-hmm. Um, things happen that are outside of your control. I have been caught in an ice fall on Mount Rainier before and uh, could have ended very badly. Fortunately, wow. it didn't. But, you know, that was luck. There's been nine
0: summits. Was that is that correct?
1: On, on Mount Rainier, I've, uh-huh. I've done uh, 10 attempts and seven successful summits. Oh, okay. and, and you learn more from the fail, failures to attend, uh-huh. you know, uh, to get to the summit, you know, twice, turn back because of weather. And once turned back because our party got caught in an icefall. Wow. And everything was perfect on that day. The weather was perfect. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. Everything was frozen. The conditions were very basic on uh, the Sherman route up Rainier, which is, you know, one of the the two easier routes. And then the mountain moved. The glacier moved. And uh, we happened to be in the middle of it. And that's just your number comes up sometimes. Right. And fortunately, our number didn't come up in a serious way. But those are the things you learn from, and you learn about how fear affects your body. You learn about the strength of adrenaline and then the aftermath. You learn about the importance of exercising good judgment. And I've been on the mountain when people have died, not in my party, and then you learn about why. What were the things, the judgments that they made? And that absolutely helps you in life. And it helps you understand leadership and the value of leadership and the challenge of ambiguity and what we as human beings can do to lead ourselves into dangerous situations because we're afraid to speak up so i i just can't tell you how many lessons i've learned
0: right okay so let's go back through your story you know so you're still nine (laughs) or or let's you know take me through the the pivotal points in your life that shaped who you are and Mm -hmm. how you got to where you are
1: yeah you know, I'm nine years old. The world is mine. I don't see male, female, black, white, uh, affluent, poor. Uh, I don't see any of those things.
0: Do you think that's how you were raised, or?
1: Yes, it was how I was raised. There's no question about it. For a variety of reasons, my mother was an army brat. I grew up in India, in you know, colonial India, and uh, left when India got its independence. And met my father. Uh, When he was doing his medical residency, my mother's a nurse, became a nurse practitioner at Planned Parenthood. Wow, so they've both been in service. They have, and they both were in socialized medicine, and uh, strong believers in healthcare for everyone. And so I grew up with that. But I also they left England because of the class nature of England, Uh, because my mother was an army brat from India. You know, didn't fit the mold of what my grandparents on my father's side thought he should be marrying, and. So they said, we're tired of this. We're going to leave. And they had two choices for a fellowship for my dad. Uh, one was in Nairobi, Kenya, and the other was in Seattle, Washington. And I could very easily have been raised in Africa, right. which you know would have had its own joys and, and challenges. But they came because they wanted a place that was more equal, where your accent, your pedigree didn't matter as much. It's places in the United States where your accent and your pedigree matters, it mm-hmm. can be a plus and a minus in this country. Uh, Seattle, I, I would say, generally is not one of those places. And so I think that it was a lot of luck that they ended up in a place that felt right for them and, and for their family. But that that certainly shaped me. And my parents had low tolerance for uh, class behavior. Uh, I think my mother, working at, uh, I guess one would say that the Planned Parenthood in the toughest area of Seattle, grew up sometimes, perhaps, as you know one of the few... Um, figures in the lives of some of the the predominantly girls that would come in that would talk to them straight about birth control, Uh, hold them accountable for, you know, if you're going to be, you know, buying a pack of cigarettes, uh, but you're not willing to pay for birth control pills, you know, let's talk about, you know, how rational that is. Mm -hmm. And they kept coming back to her, the short woman with the English accent and gray hair, because I think they were getting straight talk from someone that was not playing to them in Mm -hmm. any way. And they might not have had that kind of strength in the relationships that they had at home. So, you know, that really made a difference. My father would charge the least amount that he could in the medical profession. And a lot of his colleagues would charge the most that they could.
0: Right. But you chose engineering. I chose
1: engineering because that's the way my brain is. In my high school annual, as what they called in Renton High School, we were the Indians. Um, top of the tribe, uh, which now having worked with tribes is a little bit awkward, but nonetheless, that w- that was the uh, mascot. It says that I aspired to be, are you ready? A dental hygienist.
0: I saw that. Yeah. So why?
1: <laughs> and the why is because two things. And these, you know, father who was great, loved to get me in the outdoors, said, you know, you're going to have to have a practical profession because if you get married and have kids and then your husband dumps you, you're going to need to be able to support yourself. So that was kind of his view, not like... I've got a daughter that's actually good in math and science and could be all these other things. No, it's like okay, hedge your bets, you right. know dental hygiene's safe, so I was like, okay fine, so that's the influence that I mean my father supported me in skiing, supported me in mountaineering. <laughs> you know my mother was you know pretty active, but this is this was the message I got, and all the subtle messages were kind of the same. so I'll give you another example security fair based Just, yeah, and they do want the best for you but yeah, yeah, but they, they give you signals that they don't realize are really shaping, you know, who you, who you become. So I took the equivalent of the SAT. I was going to stay in state. I didn't even think to apply anyplace else. I just went to the University of Washington, right? That's kind of what you did. So Kathy was my best friend in high school and my roommate for my first year in college. And so Kathy was, I'd say, stronger on the verbal side of the, you know, kind of educational spectrum. And I was stronger on the math science side. And we took the Washington pre-college test, and, you know, we both did well uh, overall, but my scores were much higher in math and science. My best things were spatial reasoning and mechanical ability, okay? And Kathy's were more on the verbal side. In that test, at that time, they had recommended professions based on your score. My recommended professions, nursing, teaching, and Russian studies, (laughs) okay, they were identical to Kathy's even though our scores were radically different. Right. The, the test was biased in terms of what it recommended based on what girls should do and what so boys should do. So because you
0: checked the female box.
1: Yes. Wow. They knew I was a female and that drove that because wow. men or boys in high school were driven toward engineering sure. mm-hmm. and other Math professions and regardless Maybe not regardless, but, I, you know, they, there were a lot of them that did way worse than I did on those particular areas. So it wasn't the numbers. It was purely gender-based. Right. A purely gender-based. So when I got to the University of Washington, I uh, went into pre-dent because Kathy's like, you're smart enough. You could be a dentist. You don't need to be a dental hygienist. So, you know, why don't you? So I was like, yeah, okay, fine. So I was in pre-dent, and then I started dating uh, Warren, who's now my husband, uh, when I was – my 18th birthday was our first date. And he was doing mechanical engineering, and his sister – uh, had graduated in aeronautical engineering from Purdue, and so I talked to her and looked at his homework. You know, as we're doing homework together, and I'm like, "This looks like way more fun." So I switched majors because oh. of a role model in my future sister-in-law, but but also my husband. And it turns out he'd influenced others, sure. boys or men, to to join. Engineering and most it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even know it was a profession. And somehow following your heart still led you. Yeah. And I was good at it. You sure. know, I mean, I, I did very well. I, you know, I graduated with honors in mechanical engineering and felt more authentic. But oh. there was one professor, Professor Love, ironically, who uh, taught machine design. That was a class that I got better than any other class, and you I had the it. highest score by far. Everything, and homework, labs, tests. Were and you I,
0: one of the only females in those yeah, classes? Yeah, I might have been
1: the only. Uh, it was a way less than ten percent in mechanical engineering at that time. But that lit you up. Well, no, I, okay, it did. The class lit me up. I mean, I got it. And this is like you know, <laughs> gears and stuff that most people say, "Really?" My eyes just glaze over. I don't care how that works, but because I really you got could put that. it
0: together in your head, that spatial.
1: Yeah. So I, I went to Professor Love was kind of a grouchy guy but you know nonetheless he was a good teacher and I went to pick up my final as one did in those days and I and I and we were on a decimal grading you know tenth of a point grading and I so I got my final and it was like 97 percent and I said oh that's great and I said uh how did I do in the class you know what grade did I get and he said hmm he said well you ended up top dog in the class (laughs) kind of surprised me thinking, why would it surprise you? I've been there all quarter. But that's what he said to me, kind of surprised me. And I said, what's the, you know, what grade do I get? And he said, 3.8. I said, 3.8. Okay. What would it have taken to get a 4.0 in your class? He said, look me straight in the eye, and he said, women don't make good engineers. Wow. So did that fire you up, or did that crush no, you? No. The thing that I'd say that I have reflected on and talked about, because I was a region at the University of Washington and they recognized me with their highest award when I did the commencement address last year, was that my reaction was, maybe he's right. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's what scared me the most, as I've reflected on it, is these messages count. And the fact that you can end up with basically 98% on everything in a very hard class, which uh, people are struggling to even get 50% in, and then be told, you can't be good at what you do because of your gender. And you say, maybe they're right. That is really scary stuff. Sure. And that's why messages that we send, whether it's my dad saying dental hygiene, or it's uh, a professor saying you can't be any good when you obviously are, uh, or or friends or family or people that we care about, those messages add up. And it takes um, maturity and A few role models and mentors, male and female, and I'd say more of mine have been male than female, but they've been both, that gives you that confidence to push through and say, no, I can do this. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not easy. And I hope those messages are fewer, but I'll tell you, with the behavior of the President of the United States right now, President Trump, and what he has represented with regard to his treatment objectifying women, I mean, he objectifies everybody, but his treatment of women in particular is horrifying.
0: What about his daughter, though? That's what I wonder about. Obviously, she's, and maybe this is just the, what we see on television, but she comes across very empowered, very educated,
1: you know, very capable. Do you think that he's treating her the same way? I think she has a mother who has um, shaped her, uh, as I understand it, and I don't know much about the Trump family. The kids were taken back to the mother's home country uh, for summers, for long periods of time, and I think that that shaped her. But I think I don't know.
0: That's where the disparity that I see is. I
1: think that her being a uh, perceived to be an independent, successful woman suits his purpose as well. Gotcha. So we, we really can't say. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. Okay, I know we don't have too much time, and I do want to get on, onto the topics that everyone really wants to know your opinion about. So you're so concise. Would you mind just laying out the issue with public lands right now in the best way? So, you know, in layman's terms, what's going on? And we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, I think uh, most of us don't understand that public lands are uniquely American. If you go to England, where I'm from originally, you can do some great hiking, but you're hiking on public footpaths, or not public footpaths, on footpaths that are uh, required as easements through farmer's fields and over hill and dale, but it's all generally private land, It might be crown land, so it's technically owned by the queen and her family. It may be open to the public. It may be closed to the public. Here in this country, really from uh, very early on, the best places were set aside for the public.
0: There is no other place on the planet like this well we take it for granted we take it for granted i mean i'd say costa rica does a pretty
1: good job okay they got like 52 national parks in costa rica and and look at their economy relative to other but (laughs) that's all i want to do is protect the rainforest yeah so you know this is gets to your earlier question or or the discussion about um you know lessons learned in the outdoors and about leadership and leaning into other people and listening if you take here in utah where we are right now The Mormon pioneers feel like they pioneered these lands. They were the first. They weren't the first. Obviously, the Native Americans were the first and they lived quite effectively within these lands and landscapes. Really, public lands became public lands because we negotiated with Indian tribes, forced them onto reservations, and took their land for the United States of America. Much of it became public land, but a lot of it was homesteaded and given to others. But the land that wasn't became part of what became the BLM and the U.S. Forest Service and their precursor agency. So it is within interior 20% of the nation's lands and 100% of the nation's waters outside of the state waters. So typically between three miles out and 200 miles out is overseen by interior for the subsurface and, and NOAA, uh, no, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. No, we don't think about it. 1.7 billion acres offshore, uh, 500 and some million acres Onshore within interior, and then another 10% of our nation's landmass within the Forest Service, which is in the Department of Agriculture. So 30% of our nation's land is in public hands. Uh, the uh, state with the most public lands is Nevada at 87%. 87 87% 87 mm-hmm. of the lands in Nevada are owned by all American people. Now, families have grown up grazing. Livestock grazing and and, uh, raising cattle and sheep on public lands through leases, and that's been done for many, many decades. People grew up mining on public lands. We've, you know, leased lands for mining. Uh, There's a mining law of 1872 that basically allows people to stake a claim and then just mine, if it's under five acres, without any kind of a permit. At all, But if wow. it's over that with a permit but very few restrictions and very little uh, revenue back to the U.S. Treasury, which I think is, is something that needs to be changed, but we've not been able to change it over many, many years. Oil and gas is leased offshore. Like, think of the Deepwater Horizon spill. Those are federal waters. That was a federal lease. So the Secretary of the Interior, the Director of the BLM, the head of the U.S. Forest Service, we all had very complicated jobs about juggling the requirement uh, within the authorizing statutes for these agencies, the case of the BLM, multiple use and sustained yield. So multiple use says you got to allow a bunch of uses, conservation being one of them. Sustained yield says do it in a sustainable way. You can't overgraze the landscapes. We know what that looks like from the Dust Bowl. Oil and gas is is a finite resource as is mining activity. You need to mitigate that impact in some way so that these activities become sustainable and that is difficult. If you are a pioneer on these landscapes and your parents homesteaded, they may have a piece of land that's theirs, but they may graze their cattle on or do logging on public lands, but they feel an ownership in them. And what is has caused, say, the Sagebrush res- Rebellion and other challenges to public lands today are people that feel like these are their lands, and they aren't their lands. They belong to all Americans, and that's generally misunderstood. So part of the job of um, the Secretaries of Interior and Agriculture uh, in managing the landscapes is striking that right balance, listening to input from different parties, respecting different points of view, recognizing that lives and livelihoods depend on them. But conservation and outdoor recreation and tourism and tribal interests are all every bit as valid as mining interests and oil and gas interests and, and uh, you know grazing or logging. And so I think that's one of the things that we brought to the table and one of the things that Americans care about is wait a minute, what are we leaving for our kids? We are leaving a planet in a changing climate that is putting real stressors on our ecosystems. What role do public lands play in mitigating that? Uh, We have done activities on the landscapes in many ways that have had uh, done irreparable harm, but we didn't mean to do that. We didn't know. Now we know more. So how do we adjust... Uh, all of those things. And I think many Americans don't understand or appreciate just how much they own. They aren't active in saying, I want to stand up for this. They take most things Americans for granted.
0: Americans didn't even necessarily know all the monuments that were available to them until this, you know, review has come up.
1: Yeah, or they didn't know how monuments were created and they took mm-hmm. for granted that these are areas that they will always be able to go and recreate in. And some of the reasons for the monument designations were... Because we saw different threats to those landscapes. If you take uh, you know one of the more controversial monuments that I had a hand in, which was Bears Ears, mm-hmm. you have irreplaceable uh, archaeology and right. anthropology and, and sacred sites to tribes that were being threatened by off-road vehicle use, by p- the potential of expansion of mining and oil and gas activities, and by the fact that well-meaning people, outdoor enthusiasts were geotagging and artifacts that they might find and putting them up on the internet, and then other people would come and they were the sites were getting disturbed or destroyed in many ways, inadvertently, in some cases intentionally. And so we felt a monument designation was needed to to bring resources private resources, volunteer resources, in addition to a prioritization of government resources to protect these places because they're under threat in part because they may be being loved to death. So I think it's much more on people's radar. Uh, I think that when uh, people talk about, well, we want to start allowing, you know, jet skis in Yellowstone, for example, or, uh, you know, snow machines in Yellowstone, Uh, that are noisy and disrupt wildlife. There's some allowed, but, you know, should that be controlled? I think it should. Absolutely. Jet skis on, you know, Jackson Lake, Uh, things that do have an impact on on wildlife and so on. I think people are now beginning to pay more attention because they've got more awareness.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but the issue that we're looking at right now is that public lands are potentially going back to the states. and And then the states have the opportunity to sell those public lands to private interests.
1: That is a fear, and uh, interestingly, it's also a fallacy. I think some people, and and again, we're in Utah, there's, I think, some view that these are our lands to begin with. They don't really belong to the federal government. That's wrong. Second is uh, we can manage them better. I think there's an assumption that the turnover would just be here these lands for free. You don't have to pay for them. It's actually a law against that. If you do sell a piece of land, it has to be for equal value, whether it's monetary value or a land exchange. Sometimes land exchanges make a lot of sense. Bears ears, it does. There's landlocked pieces of state land that we should be trading out and giving them something that's of greater value to them for federal land that is existing outside of those monuments, right? But it, it's expensive to manage public land. Right. A governor in a western state said to me, Sally, I mean, I don't know what this talk is of taking over federal public land, but if you take just your firefighting budget alone, that exceeds the budget for education and criminal justice in my state, if you combine those areas. Wow. I can't afford to take over federal public lands. That's the the story that's not told, but I think for those who wanna sort of rev up the sagebrush rebellion, it's like, these are our lands, we want them back, but they aren't their lands, and they're very expensive to manage. Even though they're underfunded now, they're still funded at a greater rate than a state could afford. Right. And uh, people take for granted the firefighting that's done, the, you know, the invasive species management that's done. They, d- they aren't aware sure. or they aren't acknowledging the okay, amount so of benefit they get from federal public lands investments.
0: And so <coughs> that is not an issue, what I just talked about. is it, Well, it, I think it's, it's illegal. A, it's a fear, but it's it's that's not a legitimate fear because it's not happening because it's, it's illegal
1: it's illegal, but it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be a huge distraction and create a lot of uncertainty for businesses, say in gateway communities that rely on outdoor recreation and tourism, or frankly, for uh, ranchers that, you know, rely on grazing permits on federal public lands. Here's another fact for you. The federal government charges a fraction for grazing on its lands than the state charges Mm. or than private companies charge. And, we need, needed congressional approval to raise the rates to market rates, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow us to have it. So it's actually a subsidy for ranchers to be able to sure. graze on federal sure. public land, and they don't want to give that up, but they don't want to admit that they have it either. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's very complicated.
0: Right. And, and as well, you said yesterday, it's also illegal what Trump is doing, even with the review.
1: There's very significant <clears throat> legal work going on right now to understand what the president's authorities are and are not relating to the Antiquities Act <coughs> and I believe that he does not have the legal authority to revoke or substantially change a monument the last time a president modified a monument it was basically a, a scientific based slight adjustment to a boundary based on subsequent information uh, there has been no example that i'm aware of where a president has revoked or substantially changed a monument and there have it was clarified somewhat in the statute, authorizing statute for the BLM, the Federal Land Management Policy Act, or FLIPMA. FLIPMA helped clarify that, and we believe legally makes it clear that only Congress can adjust or change a monument. Congress can do whatever it wants, but the White House cannot. So
0: what is your <coughs> greatest fear in leaving the office, and what is your greatest hope?
1: You My know, greatest fear, that you just uh, and it's not of leaving the office, it's of who's now. Occupying the White House. Yeah,
0: in the current administration is what I meant.
1: They don't seem to have a plan to do anything other than undermine what President Obama and his team did. And can they? Yes and no. They can, they can and they have, uh, with the help of Congress, undo some of the thoughtful regulations we put in place. They almost undid the methane venting and flaring rule, but fortunately they were unsuccessful because John McCain switched over and voted with the Democrats along wow. with a couple of his Republican colleagues. But they did overturn the stream protection rule that protected communities from basically the ruining of their streams and their watersheds from coal mining. Uh, They did overturn a thoughtful planning rule in the BLM that communities would work together to say these are areas that are appropriate for development. These are areas that are appropriate for conservation. Perhaps these are areas that should be traded with state lands for something that makes more sense for the state. Um, that was overturned. It was a, a planning rule. It's crazy, and it required input from a variety of stakeholders, and they they undid that. So those things they could undo using this Congressional Review Act over, uh, you know, up through May of this last year. If a regulation has been put in place using the right process, which we did, and sometimes it's it's years, decades, in the makings and decades. not quite, de- but yes, it could be. It could be like the conservation plan for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge took more than a decade. Mm-hmm. And it recommended ninety-eight percent wilderness, and it's got the science to back it up. That can't be reversed without science that says the opposite. And you've got to do all that research, and it takes years. So they can't just go drill on the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge through administrative action. Congress can do what they want. Okay, um, they can, however, and this is my my greatest fear is that the government is full of really incredible people that have dedicated their lives to public service. And there are people that are being, in essence, forced to resign by transfers to places that make no sense for them, uh, by a hostile work environment. Uh, people that are involved in climate science are feeling very vulnerable, and I think with good reason. People that, in that are involved in, in conservation, which is a legitimate part of the multiple use and sustained yield mission, for for example, for the BLM or the Forest Service, are some of the senior-level people are uh, being transferred? I mean, we have some superb people that understand tribal issues, and uh, they're undergoing some of the same things that people who understand conservation. Is and it science just money? Is is that? No, I think it's ideology. I think that they're and the, these are public servants that have been there in many cases for 30 years. This is not you know a, a political pick. These are these are career people who are being tagged as you know not being sympathetic to, say, extractive industry interests or others well, that are being taken out. Is so it the it's
0: money behind those extractive industries that
1: are... Yes. Right. Washington, D.C. is a very corrupt place. Politicians on both sides of the aisle are corrupted by the money in politics, and I saw it all the time. Sure. I saw it in one particular Democratic leader who was um, being supported by the casino industry. And took a direct action against some Indian tribes that he felt could compete against a large casino operator. I saw it in Republican lawmakers who made decisions in the dark of night on an unrelated bill to swap out federal lands and give them to a private company based in Australia that wanted to mine the largest copper deposit in the United States. And knew that it wouldn't uh, pass muster with the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA. And so they swapped it out at the end of the day. And in so doing, if that is mined in the way that's economic for the company, will desecrate uh, a sacred site for a tribe. I've seen some really dirty deeds done in Washington, D.C. Does it make you want to give up? No, you can't give up. You can't give up. You've got to get active, which is why I spoke out at the industry breakfast saying, it's time for you guys to get active, to make the case for public lands, to not take for uh, granted that everybody's going to carry water for you. You know, you've got to make some waves. You've got to dish out some heat because there's a lot of uh, heat being dished out behind the scenes by people with big pocketbooks that are funding these campaigns. What people who care about the outdoors and public lands have are grassroots support uh, the ability to mobilize people and to let offices know what they think skiers and that matters so yes, we, you're it matters. sitting there in Washington, and if we get loud enough, they do hear us absolutely they hear you and they get they are terrified about social media campaigns mm-hmm. they're terrified about because they can 't control those they can 't control those, but they don't like reading about uh things that put them in a bad light in their local papers. Mm. I mean, the local media makes a difference. So a local business that's involved in, say, supporting a a ski area, which is on Forest Service lands most likely, which is where most of them are, they are on public lands. We take for granted our ski areas. Uh, Most of those are not private. Mm -hmm. They're on Forest Service land Mm -hmm. or BLM land, and they they require leases and businesses depend on them, right? So if those businesses say to the elected officials, hey, this business have taken over... Uh, public lands for the state, or selling them off to the highest bidder, or or mining them, or not taking care of them, is going to kill these businesses in you know Vale or Sun Valley or they're not going to do Salt that Lake because
0: City. we're empowered, we're educated. That's right, and we do have
1: money. And, and you have yeah. So what can
0: we do? You know, S- speak up. In in what ways do you think are the most effective? And then especially to the youth, how do we get the youth involved uh, and empowered and feeling like they have a voice
1: that we can use? Well, I think that, I mean, youth are much better at social media than old farts like me. Use your social media contacts. <coughs> help educate each other on the issues. I think it's incumbent on organizations out there, whether it's ski associations or uh, U.S. Ski Association, you know, the Outdoor Industry Association, these trade groups that can help help people understand the message, but how that message gets out, I think, is up to people within the the sphere of influence they have. Marches make a difference, uh, displays of activism, engaging with your congressmen and local communities, talking to your local newspapers, turning up the heat. You can't write big checks. Some people may be able to write big checks, but a lot of people can't. I sp- I'd say y- younger people less so than uh, older people. So. But we have influence. But you have influence. Everybody's trying to figure out how to grab the millennial vote. What does it look like? Vote. I mean, apathy is the enemy.
0: Just assuming someone else is going to do it.
1: Just assuming someone else is doing it, or it doesn't matter. It does matter. It would have made a difference in this last election. Mm -hmm. But also, we have to listen. What are the issues that got Donald Trump elected? Uh, That's a failure on the part of uh, many people in our political process to not see signs that people are hurting. So what is the message that he's conveying? Even if he's conveying lies about what he's going to do about it. He's w- still appealing to something He's still important. appealing to people who say, I don't feel represented. I don't feel listened to. And they have spoken. So if you don't like what's going on, you need to speak up too. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? It, it's, I just can't impress upon you the importance of getting active. I think that sitting down with people that have a different point of view across a table, not just going into the camp with your own little tribe, that's really important.
0: As a woman, also, I know personally I've struggled with being a pleaser, um, not wanting to ruffle feathers, upset anyone, threaten anyone, you know, disappoint anyone. I'll speak for myself, you know, uh, to stand up and take a side and know that that is potentially going to upset people. What advice would you give on that level, as well as, like you said, the messages you're getting from the outside to deal with people who might not like you? (laughs) I think girls in general, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. Yeah. What is your advice with that? Because if we're going to make change, we're going to have
1: to deal with people that don't like us. Yes. I do think women are different than men in more than the obvious ways. I think that our inclination toward consensus, harmony is very real. And I'm sure it's visceral and ties into, you know, the nurturing that we do as mothers and, and all of those things. And I think it takes all types be successful and I don't think that you know we should be expected to do a personality transplant or start behaving like big boy bullies in order to be effective
0: I think that nurturing is what's needed right now yeah
1: I think so too and so you know play to your natural strengths help people understand a situation by asking questions giving them an opportunity to talk helping lead them in a direction through your questioning where they may begin to question the assumptions that they came in with. Can you give me an example of that? Have, um, where you use that technique? Gosh, I use it all the time. Right uh,
0: now, she's just smiling, and just that <laughs>
1: alone. It, it, yes, let me give you a uh, let me give you a direct example. So, I am at this stage, about thirty-four years old, thirty-three years old. I have been plucked from the masses in the bank to a job being the deputy to the chief credit officer of the bank he is a very scary curmudgeon who is very smart and was a total mentor of mine he had no children he lived a very comfortable life liked to play golf said to me your job is to take on as much of my job as possible so I can play more golf (laughs) okay I had two children at this point both preschool age younger working for him working my ass off for him okay so this, this other young woman banker very very effective decided to stay home with her kids and I said oh you know I'm so sorry that so-and-so is uh, you know we're losing her she's just really really great banker and he says to me Sally that's the problem with women they just have babies and leave so I thought for a moment and I looked at him I said let's examine that statement for a minute Gordon I'm a mother I have two small children And I said, let's do a little experiment. Let's think about 10 men and 10 women, all age 25, that come into the bank. And they're going through the training program or whatever, and they're young bankers. And I said, I will bet you, if you look 10 years into the future, and we could go back historically and look at this, but I said, you will have lost some men and women. But you will have lost women because... It is very hard to leave a baby at home and go back to work. And I know this because I have two of them. But you will have lost more of the men. Why? Because I could get this title, I could get this bonus, the grass looked greener on the other side. And I said, I guarantee you, if you look now in the history of 10 men and 10 women of that, you know, now at age 35, you will have more of the women from that original group than you will have of the men. So why does, if a woman has a baby and leave, why is that not a legitimate excuse to leave while going for higher bonuses? I mean, he had wide eyes looking at me yeah, like, I oh my imagine. God, I'd never thought of that. Sure. He had another situation. And I, I mean, I think he probably lived in fear of me saying, let's examine that statement <laughs> for a moment, but it was about why mem- women don't make good managers. I had been a manager and I was running, at, you know, shortly after that, a major division of the bank. Uh, and... It was because this woman was really rigid that I worked with, and I was just sort of venting a little because we had an assistant that just could not get out of bed in the morning. I'm like, well, that's fine, Helen. You know, just come on in at 9. That's fine. Well, Betty wanted her there at 8, and and Helen did not operate well between 8 and 9. She's a night person. So I said, Betty, you know, what difference does it make? I mean, you know, we got voicemail and so on. Well, Betty wanted her there at 8, and Helen was just really struggling with that. So I was talking to Gordon about it, and he said, well, that's why women are not good managers. And I said, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's examine that statement for a minute. I said, look at Betty, who's 15 years or so older than me. She grew up in the bank where the most you could ever be as a woman was like a head teller or maybe the operations manager, which Betty had been in a branch. And what does an operations manager have to do? Make sure the doors open on time, the drawers have cash in them, the vault is open, everybody's at their stations on time, maybe five minutes early so the door's open. I said, Craig, who worked for him as well, Craig's the same way. Rigid as hell. I mean, not flexible on things like that. I said, so it's not gender. It's because that's what they grew up in. And again, like wide-eyed. Like I, so I think women have an obligation in a gentle and thoughtful way when they have a trusting relationship with someone to help that person understand in a way that, that puts it in terms that makes them think. And those opportunities don't come up all the time, but they do come up. And I think I have way more examples than I know, because people will come back and say, gosh, you said this to me, and it made me think differently about this or that. So, you know, everybody may not have the same skill set in that regard, but you do have opportunities. And I think even if you go away and you say, boy, that really bugged me, it is, I would say, your obligation to go back and say, this really bothered me and why. And I mean, I, I, I have, I have one other story. And, and this is on the evolution of women about women. And I think that you, Lindsay, and people your age are in a great position. You don't tend to see, you, know, you don't care about whether a person is gay or transgender or male or female or black or white. And that's not universally true. But for the most part, that's true with your generation, much more so than the biases of, of my generation. But there was a situation where, again, going back to my banking days, my first week on the job, and I came in as a petroleum engineer and an expert in oil and gas to the bank as an assistant vice president, so I didn't know what the titles meant, but I, I walked in as a 25 year old into a job that was sort of considered it wasn't a management job, but it was a you know it was an officer level, and so there were women that had worked their entire careers and never even saw the assistant vice president level as being in the, their sights, let alone a vice president. So there's one particular woman who just treated me in a really mean way for my entire career there. <clears throat> and as the bank was getting acquired, and this is probably circa 1986 um, or thereabouts, uh, and we were parting ways, I, I had said something to her. And she just looked at me, and she was, again, about 15 years older. And she said, I haven't treated you very well, and I'm sorry. And I said, I, I know. I, I didn't know what I'd done wrong. But I knew that, you know, you didn't like me for some reason. And she said, I've thought about it myself, about why did I have this animosity toward you? And she said, I've at least matured to where I now understand. She said, you remember you came in that first week and there was this lunch organized for officer, female officers of Rainier Bank? And I said, yeah, I do remember that, but I didn't know if this was normal or not. Like, it was my first couple weeks on the job. She said, you sat down at the table with the rest of us, and there were probably eight of us at the table, and you proceeded to shake everybody's hand and introduce yourself around the table and just jump into the conversation. And I said, yeah. And she said, you didn't earn the right to do that. Wow! You hadn't been working like we had to be sitting at that table. You didn't appreciate what you had and I resented you for that. And she said, "Now, what I understand I was seeing, is somebody that expected to be treated equally, that didn't expect to be, you know, pushed down, that had opportunities that, that I never that thought she only I had. Of. And I didn't realize that that was uh, what what I was looking at. And I realized that the world that she grew up in, if there was a pie, women were only ever going to have one slice." All other slices of the pie were going to go to men, and so there was some vicious fighting over that one slice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My generation, baby boomer generation, and you know, mid baby boom, she was probably leading edge, or maybe maybe outside of it. Grew up with maybe m- more support for each other as women, and more pride in being women, but still in a man's world. So, your generation now can be a woman and be as successful as anybody else. And the pie is not about competition with women as it was for this woman who predated me. It's now about how can we support each other? How can we support men? How can we support women? How can we support people of color and gay people and transgender people? How can we create an environment where we all succeed? And I think that's really healthy. I think it's a bit at risk with President Trump and his behavior right now. But I think we'll overcome that because of who we are. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah you're welcome
0: Uh, even in politics do you think that we can i i personally have lost a lot of belief in politics do you think we're going to change it from that side or do you think we take a totally different approach and try to change it from the business side from what i'm seeing money does all the talk right so if we can create businesses that make a lot of money we can talk with that dollar and that's the only way i
1: see a way to change money is one way but turning up the heat is the other way. And that's probably a more realistic way for a lot of people to play. And a more now. Yeah. Politicians approach. do not like the heat. The town hall meetings that have happened since the presidential election, as as people have come back to their home districts, have scared a lot of politicians. Um have caused some people to choose not to run again. Those matter. Okay. Business is stepping up. But that's a longer term. Well, no, it's. I mean, that's that's very real in the here and now, and that can be done right away. I mean, politicians do not like to be held accountable. And when you're holding them accountable and you're using social media to do that because the traditional media may be more aligned with the candidate, Mm -hmm. uh, they're using it against you, so why not use it against them? I mean, you know, it's pretty ugly out there when the president of the United States is announcing transgender people can't serve in the military through his Twitter account, I mean, uh, which is so disrespectful and so wrong. Mm-hmm. Young people are better at social media than President Trump. Use it to your advantage. Get the grassroots to rally. It will make a difference. And a lot of elected officials, particularly in the House of Representatives, they're elected by the people in their districts. There's a lot of inertia. Once they get in, it's very hard to get them out because people are complacent. If they aren't complacent and there is an organized campaign within those districts to take people out, they will get taken out because it's a representative democracy. You can vote them out. You can push back so against still the money. Works. It, it still work. works. I think so. And okay. if the you know TV campaigns are negative and they are, use social media okay. to get the truth out.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. I know All right. Know Thanks, me. Lindsay. Okay.
1: <laughs> well,
0: friends, that was Sally Jewell. Is she now one of your heroes like she is for me? I hope so. Are you ready to turn up the heat and accept that power that we didn't even realize we had? I know I'm trying to do my best, and I'm sure you are too. This has been an episode of the Showing Up podcast. I hope in somehow, in some way, it has inspired you to show up for an impossible dream of your own. If you like the show, give us a rating on iTunes, share us with a friend, leave us a comment, and until next time, I'll see you in the mountains. Bye, unicorns.